Welcome to SLP Money, an in-depth conversation for speech, language pathologists, and private practice owners on how to break through to the next level of your career and business. Join your host, Craig Goldslager, a financial advisor and certified exit planner, as he shares strategies and stories that will help you become more financially confident and better invest your time and money. You can learn more and stay up to date at utterlyfinancial.com. Hello, SLP Nation, and thank you for joining us again today for another episode of SLP Money. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic that is important for all speech-language pathologists, whether you've been practicing for decades, maybe you just graduated CFY. Regardless, it's really important that you are able to track your financial progress and growth as an individual, as a family, where you've been and where you're headed from a financial perspective. So a, a quotation that I'd like you to keep in mind throughout the episode is one that comes from Peter Drucker, who was a very famous management consultant in the 20th century, really one of the godfathers of modern business workplace study, creating metrics and systems to measure workplace performance, improve processes. And so a quote that he is attributed with is, if you can't measure it, you can't improve it. So as an SLP, I know that you leave detailed SOAP notes in your client's case files. I know that you constantly track your IEPs and your developments if you're in a school setting. While you're used to doing it in the workplace, you must do it in your personal life as well from a financial perspective. And if you own your private practice, you need to do it from a business perspective as well. So we're going to jump in and talk again about five different types of measurements that everyone should track to measure your financial progress. And number one is your net worth. So your net worth is really the sum of all of the financial decisions that you've made up to the point at which you calculate it. So that number might be negative if you're a recent graduate of CFY and you have student loan debt and you don't have many assets to your name. Or on the opposite side, that number might be positive six figures, maybe seven figures, depending on how much you've saved between yourself, your spouse, or any other monetary resources that have come into your life. Let's talk about how to calculate your net worth. So your net worth is simply the difference between your assets and your liabilities. So an asset is anything that has tangible value to it. So that can include things like personal property, which might include cars, jewelry, engagement rings, things of value within a home. It could include short-term savings vehicles like your checking account, however much money you keep in your checking or savings account, or maybe it's an online savings account. You also have medium-term savings accounts like an investment account or a brokerage account. Maybe you have longer-term savings like a retirement account, a 401k, an IRA, a Roth IRA. You also might have some real estate, whether it's a personal residence or property that you live in. Perhaps it's commercial real estate. Maybe you own the clinic in which you practice in. And then another asset you can have is your business and the valuation of your business. So when you sum the total of those assets, you're left with a number. Let's say in this example, the sum of all of those different types of assets is $1 million. What I'll do then is I will then total my liabilities. 
And my liabilities can be short-term debt, like student loan debt, credit card debt, auto loans, things on which I owe or perhaps taken out a line of credit. You also have mortgages that can be factored into debt, any outstanding business lines of credit if you're a private practitioner. And then you also might have income tax due. So one thing that people often neglect when they think about their retirement savings accounts are if I have money saved in a 401k or an IRA, if the balance is $100,000, there is an embedded tax liability because if you're saving on a pre-tax basis into one of those qualified accounts, like an IRA or a 401k, you do have to pay tax on the way out. So we believe it is important to know that there is a pending tax within that. So any future tax liability we take out and we'll base that on your current tax rate. So once you sum up the total of your liabilities, you subtract that from your assets and you're left with a number. And as I mentioned, that number might be negative if you're just starting your career as an SLP or it could be positive. I I don't think it's necessarily a negative thing if you have a negative net worth, especially if you're a recent graduate. But what is important is that you track that. So if you do have a negative net worth, let's say it's negative $100,000 because you and your spouse both took out student loan debt and you just graduated. So you haven't had the opportunity to earn a substantial income, save any money, put it towards growing your asset base. What I think is important is to track that number and have it go from a negative number to zero. That's the first step because if you're paying off that debt, you're improving your net worth. So even if it gradually goes from negative 100,000 to negative 50,000 to zero, you're making financial progress by getting it to zero. And then once it gets to zero, your next goal might be to make it $100,000 or then $500,000. You just want to continue that positive momentum and continue to grow it, but you do need to measure it and you do need to track it. So fortunately, there are tons of software available that can help aggregate all of your different information. So you can combine all of your checking accounts, your credit card payments that are due, your student loans that are due, your mortgages, your retirement account. One of the problems that we see why people are not able to track their net worth is because of the sheer magnitude of the different accounts that I just mentioned. The average American has money at eight different financial institutions. That's your checking account, your savings account, student loans, car loans, your mortgage, your retirement account, your business checking account. It it can be so much more than that. So it's very cumbersome to sit down and try and go over your monthly statements from every account. So I would encourage you to look into some of these data aggregation tools that exist to pool all of that together. And then all of a sudden you can have your net worth right there. So anytime you log on to that data aggregation system, you'll have those numbers right in front of you. And then If you don't want to use the data, maybe it's just tracking it in an Excel spreadsheet or a yellow pad, a notepad. Come up with the different numbers or system. Whatever system works for you is the most important. Some clients do it by pen and paper. Others do it with software. Sometimes they do it in a spreadsheet. Whatever the case may be, it's important that you have your systems and you follow them and track because you want your net worth to continue to grow. As I mentioned, if you're a younger SLP, that's getting it from negative with student loan debt to zero. But as you improve your tenure and have more working years behind you, you want that number to continue to grow. So you want to see that continued positive growth. The second metric that I'll talk about today, if you're a private practice owner, it's your business valuation. We talked all about why you must know the valuation of your private practice back in episode three. And we had Jason Early, the chief revenue officer of Biz Equity, 
join us to talk about the importance of why you need to know that number. So just as you're tracking your personal net worth, you can think about your practice valuation as your business's net worth. And over time, you want that number to continue growing. So when you're talking about practice valuation, you're thinking about your top line number, your revenues, your gross receipts, your number of billable hours, how much money the practice is bringing in. And then you also want to look at your bottom line. So that's your net income. Now, one key caveat to your practice valuation is that just because you show a lower net income doesn't necessarily mean that your practice valuation is not significant. So while you are working and while you're owning your practice, if you're working with a CPA, they're most likely trying to keep your net income lower so you have less taxable income. But when you calculate the valuation of your practice, you can add back in certain types of metrics. Maybe that's the salary that you're taking as the business owner. It could be business expenses that are added back on. It could also be business travel or a company car. Whatever it is, all of that gets added back into your practice valuation. So we won't spend too much time talking about how to calculate that metric, but it is important that you track it and you want to see continued growth of your valuation, especially because we talk about so frequently how private practice owners expect their businesses to be a large source of generating retirement income once they do decide to retire. So you want that practice valuation to continue growing over time, just as you want your personal net worth to continue growing. And it should be measured annually. So that way you have a consistent basis of year over year performance and what that number should be. The third metric that everyone needs to look at for evaluating your financial progress is your savings rate. And so that is the percentage of money that you save towards your financial goals. And as I mentioned on the outset of today's program, this number might be different or this percentage might be different than your coworkers, than your brother, than your other family members. What matters is identifying your financial goals in life, whether that's saving for a down payment in a house, saving towards retirement, funding a child or grandchild's education. Maybe it's a second property or an investment property. However you define financial success, and whatever goals you set will be met by how much you're able to save. And the process of saving is a very difficult one because it means that you have to delay gratification. Everyone wants to spend money and buy the latest car, the latest TV, the latest gadget, go on a vacation. They want to experience those different things today. Delaying that gratification and Pushing it out into the future is what savings is, because if you want to accomplish a goal, oftentimes people don't have the necessary cash to purchase that item today. It might be something intangible like retirement, but if you're saving for a down payment on a house, unless you are going to receive a bonus from your employer, or if it is your private practice, you're going to have a huge year where you can fund the down payment for a house in one year. Oftentimes people need several years to save for these larger ticket or larger financial goals. So you do have to measure and track your savings rate. And so depending on what the goal is, there is an appropriate savings rate that you need. So the way we calculate savings rate is the amount of money you save in a given year divided by your gross income. So we're looking at the totality of your savings rate, not necessarily the specific item or goal you're using that money for. So if I earned $100,000 last year and I put aside $20,000 into various accounts like a retirement account, an investment account, even if it sits in my savings account at my institution where I bank, all of the money gets pulled together and put towards a savings rate. And then it depends on where I'm going to take that money. So in this example, I've saved $20,000 last year and I want to allocate that across various savings 
goals. So maybe it's retirement or saving for a child's education or a down payment for a home. This money will be going onto your balance sheet and improving that first calculation we talked about, the net worth. So sometimes people will say, well, what about if I'm paying down debt? Does that count towards my savings rate? And I would say no. If you pay down debt, that does go towards lowering your liabilities, which in turn increases your net worth. So it's important to see how debt is being factored in. We're accounting for that in the net worth calculation. This is simply savings rate or savings dollars going onto your balance sheet, onto your assets side of the ledger and figuring out how much your asset base is continuing to grow. So when I mentioned that it doesn't matter how much you're saving compared to others, let's take a specific goal like retirement. Some people want to retire really early in life. They want to retire when they're age 40. Others want to retire at the magical age of 65 or 66 when they might realize full social security income. That's an individual decision and an individual goal of when you want to retire. So let's take those two opposite positions. If I want to retire at age 40 versus age 66, can I get there by saving the same amount of money, regardless of rate of return, but just by actual savings dollars? And the answer is, of course not. If I want to, re- if I'm 30 years old and I want to retire by the time I'm 40, that means I'm going to retire 10 years from now. In order to do that, I have to save approximately 65% of my income. So some of you may be rolling your eyes when I say that. Others of you might be super savers and you might be saying, how can anyone do that? Well, if your priority is to become financially independent and retired at age 40, that means you're making other sacrifices and you might not be spending money as frivolously as others. Conversely, if I want to retire at age 65 and I'm 30 years old, I have 35 years to start stashing away more money towards retirement. So maybe I only have to have a savings rate of 15% towards retirement in order to get to that goal. So that might be more realistic for some, but that's the real difference. Defining the goal and figuring out how much time you have to get to that goal. So once you determine your savings rate, the next metric, metric number four, is what amplifies the savings rate, and that is your investment rate of return. So people invest money, whether it's in the stock market, the bond market, a CD at the bank, in a a high-yielding savings account. The reason they do that is to earn interest or growth of their money by having your money work for you. So it's important to track investment rate of return a couple of different ways. One is you have the individual rates of returns in the individual accounts of which you're trying to accomplish goals. So back to the example, if I'm a 30-year-old and I'm saving for retirement, I have a very long investment horizon until I'm going to access that money or use it in retirement. So perhaps I want to take more risk. I might take less risk depending on my risk profile. But if I have a long investment horizon, perhaps that's achieving a rate of return for me that's greater than something that I need a short-term goal for, like saving for a down payment in a house. If I need access to money in the next 24 months to put for a down payment, that money needs to be liquid. It needs to be available. I need the exact amount required for the down payment on my house. I can't have the risk of principal be by placing it into something like a stock market or a risky type of investment where I know the money's not there. But if you're measuring your overall financial status, the second way to track that investment rate of return is by pooling all the aggregate investment accounts together and coming up with a rate of return that is weighted by the amount of money in each account. So just as I mentioned that there's data aggregation tools to help calculate your current net worth, those same tools can help give you a blended overall rate of return across all 
all of your different investments. So again, depending on where your money is being allocated for specific goals, like I said earlier, maybe you have a moderate term goal. Maybe you're saving for a secondary home and you need that money in 10 years. Well, you might fall into a moderate rate of return, something like four or 5%. If you're saving for retirement, you can perhaps take more risk and save for seven or 8%. And short-term investment goal might have no rate of return. It might just sit in your savings account and you're just saving dollars. But again, the importance of rate of return is that it adds accelerant onto the fire, if you will, that is savings. And a really good general rule of thumb to keep in mind regarding rates of return, there's something called the rule of 72. So if, if you're looking to have your money double, if you take 72 and divide the expected rate of return, that'll tell you in how many years your money will double. So for instance, if I think I can put my money into an investment account that will earn 4%, if I do that on average, a return of 4%, my money will double every 18 years. And that's when we talk about things like compound interest, where compound interest can be explained very easily by thinking about a hockey stick-like growth chart, or if you think about the number of cases that happened with the COVID-19 crisis, all of a sudden that number starts very small, and then there's that explosive exponential growth. Compound interest works the same way. So the longer you leave your money invested, the longer you let it work for you, it will have that surge towards the end, but that takes decades of compounding and patience. And we talked back in episode five about some common investor mistakes and trying to time the market was one of them. Often we get asked, well, is now a good time to pull the money out of the market? Is it time to pull back in the market? That's just a very difficult thing to try and accomplish on a consistent basis. You might get lucky once or twice, but to do it over an entire investment career is very difficult. I think it's very good exercise to think about the rule of 72 and just know what the expectations are for your money. So if I invest in something that has a 4% of return rate of return, maybe it's not as risky as something that has a 10% rate of return. So if I'm trying to accomplish 10% rate of return, based on the rule of 72 math, my money will double every seven years. So all of a sudden you can start seeing how quickly someone might get excited by chasing a large rate of return, but you can't underestimate the amount of risk associated with that type of investment. So you'll deal with a lot of volatility. You'll see a lot of ups. You'll see a lot of downs. And again, it all depends on what that investment goal is and what your time horizon is. If it's money that's dedicated for a future goal that's 10, 20 years away, you can assume more risk. If it's a shorter term goal, that's what the investment rate of return. Again, maybe it's just money going into a savings account. So again, you should look at it from an individual account perspective, as well as an overall blended rate of return across all the different assets in which you invest, including real estate. Maybe the price of your primary home or commercial real estate goes up and, fluctu and fluctuates over time as well. So the fifth metric that you should use to evaluate your financial progress is one that I think gets overlooked too often. And it's how much you actually pay in taxes annually. So looking at things like your tax rate. So there's two important numbers to know with your tax rate. One is the effective tax rate. And the second is the marginal tax rate. So to calculate your effective tax rate, you add up all the taxes that you pay. You pay, you pay your federal tax. Uh, if you live in a state where there's income tax, you pay your state income tax. You perhaps pay payroll tax or you pay half of your payroll tax or all of it, depending on the type of employee you are or if you're a business owner. You sum up all of the taxes that you pay, you divide it by your gross income, 
and that leaves you with your effective tax rate. You compare that to your marginal tax rate. So your marginal tax rate is the tax rate you would pay on one more dollar of taxable income. So the American tax system is a progressive tax system, which means that it imposes a lower tax rate on low income earners compared to those who earn a higher income, making it based on the taxpayer's ability to pay. So it means a larger percentage if your high income earner will go towards tax than for lower income individuals. So why that's important for your marginal tax income is because if I'm in, let's say the 32% tax bracket, every dollar I spend next will be taxed at 32 cents on the dollar. So there might be more advantageous ways to use that money than having it taxed at such a high tax rate. When you are putting money towards your savings rate, there are three different types of accounts in which you can save money. You can save money into a taxable account. You can save money into a tax-deferred account. And you can save money into a tax-free account. So if you are a high-income earner in a high or the highest tax brackets, it may make sense to put money into a tax-deferred account, which are 401ks, 403bs, IRAs. All of that money will lower your current year's taxable income. And so if I earned $300,000 last year and I'm up towards the highest tax rate, I might choose to max out my 401k or other types of qualified accounts to lower that number. So that way I'm not spending 32 cents, 34 cents on the dollar in tax. It's really important to know what that marginal tax rate is because the opposite case might be true. Let's say you made $300,000 last year, but this year you're on track to make $100,000. And that could be because of a temporary job loss. Maybe it's pregnancy and you are going to go on FMLA or take the rest of the year off to be with your child. The fact that your income is so much lower, you might only fall into the 12% tax bracket versus the 32% tax bracket. If that's the case, you might want to put money towards a tax-free type of investment account. So maybe that's saving money into a Roth IRA. With the Roth IRA, you'll pay tax in the current year, but again, it's only at a 12% rate and money invested in a Roth IRA grows tax-free for the duration of your life in the account. So it might not make sense to put money into a tax-deferred account if you're at a 12% effective rate or a relatively lower effective rate in a given year versus a 32% or higher rate. And all of that changes depend on your annual incomes. Maybe your spouse wasn't working this year or you, again, had a temporary job loss. It's really important to know where you fall within the effective tax rates and and do calculations like that to know whether you should put money into a tax-deferred account, a tax-free account, some combination of both. That's what the tax rates tell you. As you progress throughout your career, you will most likely be earning more money. And if you're earning more money, you fall into these higher tax brackets. So maybe at the beginning of your career, if you're in one of these lower tax brackets, there's more advantageous types of accounts to save into because of your low effective tax rate. So as I mentioned towards the end of every episode, we're all about taking action here on the SLP Money Podcast. And so I'll give you three action items that you should take to track some of these measurements and performances. So number one, you need to calculate your net worth. It serves as the benchmark and baseline for where you'll be making financial progress from. It requires you to go through and find statements for all of your different assets and your liabilities, subtract your liabilities from your assets, and there you have your number. And that net worth, hopefully next year, that number is greater than what it was at this time this year. Action item number two, challenge yourself to save one percentage point or more on your savings rate. So if I save 10% of my income in 2019, I should target 11% 
in 2020. And remember to calculate your savings rate, all of the money that you saved into various accounts, whether it's retirement accounts, checking accounts, savings accounts, divide that by your gross income. So if I saved 10% last year and I earned $100,000, I should look to save at least $11,000 into those various accounts. There are a lot of tools that can help you. The fancy way of saying this is to create a budget. And again, it's nobody's business to tell you where to spend your money, where not to spend your money. But if you do have longer term goals, or even if it's a shorter term savings goal, you do need to save dollars somehow. So that does mean making sacrifices and trying to spend less money than you currently are. So it doesn't matter on what, it just has to be on something. And that's sitting down, going through your credit card statements, that's going through your debit cards and your spending habits to improve that savings rate by at least one percentage point in 2020. Action item number three, project out what your current income for the year will be and think about if there are any life events that are going to happen that will cause your income to greatly differ from what it was last year. If that's the case, it's time to talk with your CPA or your financial planner or financial advisor and strategize around ways to get out in front of this difference in income. If maybe it's not a shortage of income, maybe you've had double or triple the income. So instead of owing all of this extra money because your taxes went up, maybe there's strategies that can be implemented to lower your current taxable income for the current year. So talk to your team, be proactive. All of this can be addressed with proper planning and giving proper notifications. You don't want to be surprised tax time when all of a sudden you're hit with an extra four, five, maybe even six figures of taxable income and you have to scramble to try and find money to pay the taxes. So I really appreciate you all tuning in and listening to another episode of SLP Money and we'll talk with all of you again real soon. You've been listening to SLP Money hosted by Craig Goldslager. Want even more ideas on how to make smart financial decisions? Head on over to the Learning Center at utterlyfinancial.com, where you'll find more information for SLPs and private practice owners. While there, you can also schedule a complimentary 30-minute consultation with Craig. If you've enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, which will help more people discover SLP money. Thanks so much for listening. materials discussed is for general and informational purposes only and is not to be construed as tax, legal, or investing advice. While the information has been gathered from sources believed to be reliable, please note that individuals' situations may vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual and professional advice. Craig Goldsleiger is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 2 South Biscayne Boulevard, Suite 1740, Miami, Florida, 33131, 305-371-6333. Securities, products, and financial services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC, financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Utterly Financial is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian, Craig Goldsleiger does not maintain specialized licenses or qualifications for the financial services provided to speech-language pathologists and private practice professionals. California Insurance License 0K78754-2020-94900, expiration 0222.